Well, howdy there, folks. It's me, Heather, back with another free episode of my novel, Strike Boat, a novel about freedom, which I am podcasting as a free audiobook um, in order to be able to share it with as many people as I possibly can for free during this historic moment in Canadian history. Today's chapter is a very long one, so I'm going to get started. I just wanted to say, um, for those of you who are listening, it is today is February 2nd, 2022. That is two slash two slash two two. And for those of you who are um, at all astrological or numerological, um, I myself kind of believe in that stuff. Today is a very good day for setting intentions. Today I set some intentions on writing, finishing writing Archipelago, the sequel to uh, Strike Boat. And I just want to also point out that chapter I'm about to read today, I'm reading uh, this whole podcast. I am reading from my original Word document. So the page numbers are different than what you see in the novel that's published. But the page 222 is going to be a part of our reading today, uh, which is crazy. Okay, with that, uh, we're going to get started because, like I said, it's going to be a long chapter. Chapter 16, A Visit from the Ancestors Jenna was still in the council chambers, still live-streaming from inside the room Doucette had fired into. Carrie had made contact with the operators of the Occupy Forum, which was good. He was talking to them in the chat. She waited for him to finish typing something, and then he looked at her. There are protests organizing. Occupy is running a messaging network that connects them. He paused for a moment, then looked up at her. Some of them are coming here. Why are they coming here? Jenna asked. Because they want to stand with you. You're the biggest flare of hope they've got right now. An adult in a position of authority who is willing to tell the truth. Jenna thought about that. I've had to throw away my personal credibility to do it, she said, thinking of that moment of hesitation that flash of abject fear she'd felt before hitting the button to start live streaming. She looked into the laptop camera and spoke directly out to the crowd of viewers watching. Hey, you out there listening to this, if you are in a position of power and you know what's going on, you need to speak up. Get people moving. Call for the government to evacuate the area. It's our only choice. Not everyone can drive. Some are in the cities without vehicles. There's not enough trains or buses left to move them all. The government needs to help them. Use your voice. Call for justice. Call for truth. Call for integrity. People deserve a chance to get to freedom, to safety. Suddenly, on a drift of breeze that came in through the open window, the faint sound of drumming carried across the airwaves, reaching Jenna. She cocked her head. Do you guys hear that? The drumming was getting louder. Jenna found herself drawn to it. She got up from her chair and went to the blown-out window, where she could hear the sound more clearly. The sound was calling to her. It's drumming, Wanda said, coming to stand beside her. Carrie looked down, brushed a a hand through his hair. I know what that is. 
It's my nan. It's the elders. Jenna looked at him appraisingly. She knew that Carrie was indigenous. He came from the Oneida Reservation, just a short drive from Mount Bridges, the same First Nation where the toxic slurry had been dumped illegally in the marshland. Somehow, even though she knew this about Carrie, it didn't come up often in her association with him. He seemed like an average, everyday kid to her. As she watched, something about the approaching sound of the drums seemed to elicit a change in him. He stood up straighter, taller, brushed his bangs out of his face, and took a deep breath, filling his chest to its fullest capacity. And then he looked at Jenna, and when he met her eyes, there was something powerful there that she had not seen just a few moments before. The elders want to meet with you, he said. Wordless, she returned his gaze for a moment, holding his eyes with her own, while the sound of the drumming became louder, more compelling. She could feel the pull of it, calling to her, calling to her soul. Beside her, Wanda gasped. My God, she breathed. They are magnificent. Jenna turned her head. She looked out the ruined window. What she saw was beyond imaginable. They came through the field of cut wheat on foot with the afternoon sun shining golden behind them. They came as a group, the leaders approaching in a line with row after row of their people behind them. Many were wearing their street clothes, but some wore the regalia and the colors were splendid. Some carried canoes, some were on horseback, some simply walked with their satchels of belongings and some carried small children. Older children walked amongst them on foot as well. They emerged from the wheat field and onto the tarmac at the back of the municipal building to the place where just a short while before the helicopter had landed to pick up Gilles Doucet. They came to a place where they could see Jenna looking down from the council chambers on the top floor of the building. The group of leaders was in the lead they came to a stop, all of them looking at Jenna. The drumming got louder as the rest of them filed in from behind, filling in the spaces around the lead group, arranging themselves in a unified column, all of them staring straight up at her, so she felt they were staring at their soul, appraisingly. Just when Jenna thought that the drumming would become more than she could handle, calling to her soul, calling her out, it stopped. As if on cue, all of the drums in the gathering stopped on the same beat. The silence was merciful, like water flowing, when the sound of the drums released its hold on her soul. But that moment was brief. A man from the front row called out. We've come to speak to the mayor, his voice boomed. Will you come down? What do I do? Jenna whispered to Carrie. Call out. Tell them you'll come down. They have something to say, and you might as well hear it. Jenna nodded. Right, she whispered, and then she stood up to her full height. I am the mayor, she called out, her voice booming from somewhere deep inside her that she hadn't been aware that she had the power of. I will come down. Turning her back to the window, she looked around at the little group that was with her in the council chambers. Are you guys coming with me? 
I am, said Lodi. The others nodded. Good. Jenna took a deep breath. Let's go. Jay walked out first, as Carrie had advised him to do. He crossed the tarmac, slowly, shyly, holding the laptop facing inwards toward himself. People watching from home across the continent could see his face, with Jenna slightly behind him, backed by her small cohort. They stayed back as Jay approached the Indigenous contingent. Haltingly, Jay started speaking. Welcome, he said. I wanted to make you aware that we are broadcasting this. I wanted to give you the choice whether to appear on camera or not to. In the stairway, on the way down, Carrie had given him the heads up that he should ask this and get permission first. There was silence for a moment, and then an old woman with two long silver braids hanging down to her waist held Jay's gaze. Finally, she spoke. You can film us, she said. We know about the live stream. It is why we have come. She broke eye contact with Jay and gestured with one hand to a youth of about 17 who stood off to her right and slightly behind her. Show him. The young man had a smartphone in his hand. He turned it toward Jay, and Jay saw himself holding the laptop. They were watching the broadcast. A few others in the crowd held up their devices. The woman with the two braids spoke. It was right that you asked. We aren't primitive, you know. We have technology. She smiled at Jay. He blushed, then grinned at her. Okay. He retreated to a short space away, to where he could get a good angle. The woman with the two silver braids looked at Jenna. There was serenity emanating from her. Jenna could feel it. As she watched, the woman turned a hand outward. Come forward, she invited. Jenna glanced over her shoulder, but the small group was with her. They crossed the tarmac together, with Jenna in the lead by a few steps, to the front of the column of people that waited, still, with the afternoon sun at their backs. Jenna came to stand face to face with the woman who seemed to be their leader or spokesperson. I am Jenna, she said. I am the mayor. The woman held Jenna's gaze for a moment and then spoke. I am Wind Eagle. There was an interview, an interval of time after she spoke. Finally, she broke eye contact with Jenna and turned to face Carrie. Hello, grandson, she said. Hi, Nan, Carrie said. You remember my girlfriend, Tamara? He put his arm around Tamara and pulled her to him. This is her mother, Mary, and these are my friends, he said. Wind Eagle inclined her head, bowing slightly first to Mary and then to Mara. It is good to meet you, she said. Mary gave a timid smile and wiggled her fingers in an awkward little wave. Hello. Wind Eagle turned back to Carrie. We'll talk after, he nodded. She turned to Jenna once again. For thousands of years, the ancestors lived on these lands. They lived in harmony with nature. They fished in the rivers and lakes. They hunted in the forests. They grew the good plants, produced food in large gardens. They knew the medicines. They held ceremonies honoring the great spirit and the spirit of earth. 
and all the spirits of all of the animals, trees, and rivers. They held honor for this land, for all living things and all peoples. And while they lived the traditional ways, the earth was good. For thousands of years, the earth was cared for, respected, unharmed. And then the traders came, and the priests, and they brought the corruption. They brought shiny coins in little cloth pouches, and they cut down our forests and blasted up our rocks to make more of those coins. And they pushed the ancestors onto small corridors, which they called reservations. And the ancestors cried, for they felt the pain of the forests and the animals and the rivers who ran foul with the filth of industry and its lack of respect for everything but those shiny coins. And when that wasn't good enough, they came and collected our children. They took away our children and they harmed them, those priests and those nuns. They harmed them and humiliated them and tried to banish our ways from their minds. And they tried to steal our own words from their mouths. And they killed them, our children. Multiple, multiple times, they murdered our children and the spirits of the earth and the animals and the trees and the rivers, they cried and our people suffered. The ones who survived, those children, they grew up and they suffered. Like a wounded bear, they roared out their pain and they thrashed and they struggled and the reservations became wild with the pain of it. But our people persevered and we told our stories and then the world started listening. But then the wealthiest ones with the most coins of all they dug down into the earth with their terrible fumes and their jets of chemicals, and they corrupted the very ground that we walk upon. So desperate are they to make more of those coins. And our people, we knew and were saddened. We know that because of what those men have done, the time has grown short for this land that we love, this land that our people treasured, respected, and cared for. This land that we've been pushed off of, pushed to one corner of, but where we have still kept connected to the earth. They've broken this land's heart and they've broken its bones. And the wind whispers to our grandfathers to tell us that a flood is coming. And so we go with our canoes to the wilderness, to the mystical realms between worlds, the places where the ancient ones traveled. And we go there today to ride out the flood and we go to make our people live again in the old ways, to pray for the spirit of the earth and the animals and the trees and the lakes. And we go to try to heal them with ceremony and respect. And we came here to tell you this because you are one of them. Jenna was taken aback by this. Me? I, I don't understand. I am not one of them. I oppose them. My values align more with yours than they do with theirs. I am not one of them. She stepped back a half a step and crossed her arms over her chest. Wind Eagle smiled. You may not be aware, but you are one of them. You serve the system that only cares about coins. Jenna was thinking furiously. She felt conflicted inside. There was part of her that could see what Wind Eagle meant that from her perspective, anyone in government, anyone who served the status quo, 
was a part of the system that had been set up to benefit only those privileged few at the top of the food chain. But Jenna was different, wasn't she? Wind Eagle, I can see what you're saying, but I'm different. I came to this office because I wanted to be different. I wanted to stand up for what's right, to lead with integrity, to push back against those systems of corruption that have oppressed. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing here today. I found out about the fracking. I found out about the damage, and I'm calling them on it. That's what the live stream is. That's what the whole point of all of this is. Wind Eagle's smile turned sad. You mean well, child. I can see that. You meant well when you were elected. What happened? What made you decide to run for the office of mayor? Jenna thought back. It, it was the toxins. They had been hiding toxins in a marshland. It was on lands that were provincially significant wetlands, which are supposed to be protected. It was on lands that were part of the Oneida Nation, Wendigal said. It was on lands governed by my band's council. Yes, Jenna stammered. Yes, that too. And so the reason you ran for office was that reason, that those watershed lands had been corrupted, that my people were sick. Yes. Wendigle closed her eyes momentarily, and when she opened them back up, Jenna felt that she was staring right at her soul. And yet, when you made your rounds after the election, when you made representations to the neighboring councils, met with the municipalities nearest you, which one did you forget? Did you come to Oneida? Did you meet with our council? Immediately, Jenna realized that she had not. She felt like a fool. How could I have overlooked them? Wordless, she waited for Wendigo to go on. Wendigo laid her hand on Jenna's arm. You came to this office because you knew that what was happening was corrupt and you wanted to make a difference, and yet you did not come and talk to the people who had been most affected, who had the traditional knowledge, who respected the spirit of the waters, and who could play a part in healing them. You dismissed us as having no voice, as having no power, as having no understanding of the issues at hand because we've been largely excluded from the system that only cares about those coins. But we knew. We have known that the earth here was cracking. We knew that this part of the great turtle's back was cracking, and you would have known too if you'd met with us. There was reproach in Wendigo's eyes. With a sinking feeling, Jenna realized that Wendigo was right. She scrubbed both hands over her face, hung her head, pushed her hair back with both hands, and then shook her head to clear it. When she opened her eyes and looked back to face Wendigle, it was with remorse in her heart. I am sorry. Jenna looked back at the laptop that Jay Marksman still carried. It was facing her, watching this exchange, and Jenna felt the significance of the moment and the importance that she get it right. She took a deep breath. I am sorry that I overlooked you. I am sorry that I contributed to a system that ignores your wisdom and keeps you oppressed. I am sorry for what has been done to your people and especially to your children. You are right. I am one of them. 
I am one of the white people who operates in a system that only cares about money, that ignores the earth, her first people, and their wisdom, that continues to ignore it even now at a time when we need it the most. I am sorry, and I will try to do better. I ask you now for your wisdom. Jenna looked around at them, at all of the people arrayed in front of her, and at the little group who stood behind her. She thought about the brokenness of the land that they stood upon, and for the first time, she allowed herself to feel what it must feel like to be Wind Eagle, to have known the kind of love and respect for the land that she had just spoken of, and to watch white man come and destroy it, to make a deliberate effort to break her people's hearts, minds, and spirits. And she thought about how it must have looked to them that even Jenna herself, who considered herself to be compassionate and caring and determined to do what was right, had not even thought to converse with them. And then she thought of what they must feel here, right now, to be leaving in a group once again with their canoes and with their possessions and small children strapped to their backs, once again driven from their homes by white men's greed and the ills that it wrought. She felt a stab pierce her heart and a great sorrow enveloped her so that she felt wretched and almost unable to speak, but she pulled herself together and forced the words to come. They flew out of her mouth in a whisper. What should we do? Wendigo looked at her for a long moment. Finally, she spoke. You already know what to do, she said. Follow your heart. The answer is in there. With that, she looked to the young man beside her with the round drum. Some unspoken communication seemed to pass between them. And then the young man played a single beat, the start of a steady rhythm. Behind him, the other drums fell in with him and the people began preparing to move. Wind Eagle looked over at the small cluster of people behind Jenna. Grandson, she called. Carrie immediately loped over. Yes, Nan. A change came over Wind Eagle, a softening. She looked up at Carrie with the beautiful light of unconditional love in her eyes. Reaching up, she laid a hand on his cheek. Grandson, we go. You come with us if you want, or you stay here. Choice is yours. Carrie looked over at Tamara, a muscle clenched in his jaw. Jenna could see it rippling under the surface of his skin. Then Carrie looked over at the crowd of people who stood with his nan. Jenna could see the struggle on his face, and she felt her heart go out to him. He looked back at Tamara once again, and then he heaved a heavy sigh. I'll stay here, Nan. If the flood comes, I'll come and find you. He picked up both of her hands in his and squeezed them against his chest. Not if, grandson. When. When the flood comes, you will find us. Look for us in the sky and in your dreams. Follow the signs. Look for us by the springs where the water comes up to the surface pure. Wind Eagle pulled Carrie's face down to hers and looked hard into his eyes. You are a good man, grandson. If your heart tells you to stay with your woman, then it is right that you should stay with her. 
You will find us if you need to when the time is right. You are a good grandson. You are wise. Trust your wisdom. You will be okay. She released his face from her hands and looked to the calm of people behind her. We go now. Nan, Carrie said brokenly. And then he wrapped his arms around her and squeezed her tight. I love you so much, Nan. Take care of yourself, too. Be safe. Don't take chances. Thank you for everything. Thank you for raising me. I love you. She was tiny in his arms. He clung to her a moment longer. And then when he released her, there was a wet redness around his eyes that he swiped at with his shirt sleeve. I love you too, grandson. We go now. Wendigo looked to the west, towards the setting sun. And Jenna saw that there were tears in her faded gray eyes as well in the reflection of the golden amber sun. She inclined her head briefly in that direction, and then she took a step. She started walking, and the column fell in line behind her. A young man of about Carrie's age stepped up to him and held out his hand. Catch you on the flip side, bro. Carrie clasped his hand and then pulled him in for a hug. Snake, my man, Carrie said. Take care of my nan, Holmes. The young man stepped back, met his eyes, and nodded. You know it. Bro, listen, it's messed up out there. My social media is flooded right now with these pictures, supposedly from inside the nuclear plant. Red flashing lights, sirens, that kind of thing. They say it's taken from in the plant anyway, but my buddy's got a brother works up there. Says he's never seen no red lights flash like that in there. Said it doesn't even look like the inside of the plant. He says everything's normal there. It's fucked. Also, everyone's Alexa started going off at once. All weird. Talking about a nuclear meltdown. But something about it doesn't ring true. It's like they're using social media to spread fear. I swear to God it's propaganda. Anyways, listen. I'll send you a location pin once in a while while I still have cell service so you know where we're at. Good luck, Holmes. Take care of yourself. The two of them clasped hands, and then the young man fell back in line with the column. As the group passed, several more of Carrie's friends did the same. One by one, they fell out of the line and stopped to clasp Carrie's hand, say goodbye, wish him well, and to each one, Carrie said the same thing. Take care of my nan. Then he clasped them into a bear hug and said goodbye. When the last one had passed, Carrie stood for a long time watching the column move off through the wheat field. As he watched, the setting sun lit up his face with an amber light, slowly not taking his eyes off of the column of his people moving off into the distance. He reached up and pulled his long hair back revealing the sides of his head, which were shaved, and he braided the long top section of his hair, securing it with a black band that he'd been wearing around his wrist. With his hair braided back, he watched until the sound of the drumming grew faint, and his people moved further off into the distance. 
and then the little cohort of people that remained beside him, closed in around him. Tamara snuck underneath his arm and wrapped her arms around his waist. He smiled down at her, tears in his eyes, and the little group stayed like that, watching the indigenous leave until they were no longer visible and the sounds of the drums tapered off. They were gone, and Jenna had the distinct sense that they'd taken the value of their much-needed wisdom with them. In his pristine white cubicle at the flag headquarters, Anderson Arthur watched the footage from the landslide. Morty's camera lens had caught the slide line from far away, but it was clear that what was happening was monstrous. As the layer of earth and people slid across his screen and surged into the water, all the feeling left Anderson's heart till he was numb. His fingers shook as he picked up his mug of lukewarm coffee and tried to take a sip, then gave it up and set it down again. He blinked. Tears fell from his eyes as he swiveled in his chair to face the window. Damn them, he was thinking. Damn them for not listening and damn myself for telling them and not the authorities. He should have gone himself. He had the slideshow. He could have taken it to the police, but Cochran would have killed him. He'd chosen his own hide over everyone else's, and that meant his dad was right. He was a coward. He turned to rest his elbows on the desk and press his face into his hands, and then he crossed his arms and dropped his head on top of them. The despair he felt was massive. He'd been wrong about the bruise. He thought the bruise would fall as one, but it had broken. He'd been thinking of it as a kind of canary. As long as it still stood, he thought that things would be somewhat okay, that they'd have a window of time in which to act, but he hadn't counted on the liquefaction. The eastern side of the bruise had calved, and for so many people, the website's advice to get off the bruise had been their only warning. Jenna had gotten the message out and saved some of them, hopefully at least, but Anderson had failed. This was just one more in a long line of Anderson's shortcomings. He sat up and pulled a map of the affected area open on his screen. He stared at it in consternation, puzzling out why things had happened as they had. He thought through the layers of substance that made up the shoreline. A deep layer of shale ran along the edges of all the lakes. While the vibrations from the earthquakes had most certainly dislodged the shale bed, it was the liquefaction that had been the most pressing danger. The land around the shorelines were heavily saturated with water. Any kid digging on the beach can tell you that. You didn't have to go down very deep to find the groundwater and the quakes had been shaken, the fluid from the soil, loosening up the sandy ground and washing it down the incline to the bay. But if that was true, then they had bigger problems than he'd thought. Correction, bigger problems than what I put in the slide deck that everyone's watching, he thought. The shale bed stretched around the perimeter of all the lakes, and so did the ground saturation. That meant that the timeline of the disaster was speeding up, they could expect similar landslides all around the shoreline. And if that happened, when that happens, he jolted upright in his chair, then stood and turned away, raking a hand backwards through his hair. With the wave action rebounding around the shorelines, more landslides would be triggered. 
If enough dislodged earth slid into the lakes, then the water level in the lakes would rise. Hell, with the volume of land that had already disappeared into the bay, it probably had risen already. And when more land slid in and displaced water, that would effectively make an island out of the geographical area in the center of them. The area that was already vulnerable to subsidence. Holy shit, it's worse than I thought. When the subsidence occurred, and he had no question in his mind that it would, not now, with all of the added weight of water scrolling inland, the disaster would be even more complete than he had realized. All with the highest ground, the hardest, rocky ridges would be underwater. And if that was true, then before too much longer, and sooner than he'd predicted, southwestern Ontario will be a wasteland, he breathed. His eyes narrowed, his chin firming. He had to leave, he realized. Now, right now, he had to get to where the people were amassing, who would be affected by this new development, to warn them. He'd have to go to Mount Bridges. He quickly gathered up his things and left his office, hurrying down the corridor to his father's suite of rooms. Hey, Dad, he called, sticking his head through the open door. Dad, we've got to get out of here. The timeline's speeding up. There could be... Dad? He broke off, blinking around at the darkened room that nearly jumped out of his skin when a voice spoke up from behind him. They're all gone, skinned out of here. Cochran called them all together, told them all to book. The kid was right, he said, so hit the road. I thought you were gone too. I thought I was the only one left until I heard you come out of your office. Summer stopped, looking at Anderson dully as a dim realization dawned on him through the haze of alcohol. Guess you didn't read the notification, huh? Anderson listened to him speak while his eyes blazed around the empty room his dad had left behind. So his old man hadn't even bothered to relay the information to him, hey? Hadn't even bothered to say goodbye. All Anderson had done was try to tell them. All he'd done was try to let them know their little scheme was up, give them the chance to make things right before people's lives got lost. All he'd done was express a little human decency, and because of that, he'd become a pariah. The others, he could understand. They were pissed off that their gravy train was running dry. But his father? His own fucking father had slipped out without even letting him know. That hurt. My dad's a dick, Anderson said, looking blankly at Summers. Andrew Summers nodded. His own old man had liked to come home drunk and bat his wife around when he lost all the rent money playing poker. He hadn't spared the rod on little Andy either, coming into Andy's room when he was three years old to bellow, shut up, you're bawling, before belting him across the mouth. Little old Andy had learned right then not to say shit to Papa Steve unless his mouth was full of it. He nodded again at Anderson. So is mine, he said. They shared a moment of frank contemplation, each considering how things might have been growing up for the other. Anderson felt a distinct sensation of casting off shackles. He was an Arthur, and an Arthur didn't fraternize with the help. But suddenly he felt the bonds of shared humanity with the man in front of him more strongly than any kind of bond he felt for the Arthur family. 
It was new and strange and somehow free to him, and he was going with it. His feet picked up a distant rumble through the floor tile. He cocked his head to listen, but the quake this time subsided. Thank God. He looked at Summers. How'd you like to go for a little ride? He asked. Summers shrugged. Suits me, he said. Long as I'm serving one of you flag execs, I'm still on the payroll, I'll guess. I'll see that you get your pay, Anderson told him. We're going to a little town west of here called Mount Bridges. You know it? Sure, Summers said. I lived in London growing up. Played fastball in Mount Bridges as a kid. Good, said Anderson. Now how are we going to get there? Summers was about to answer when the intercom walkie-talkie that he held loosely in his hand crackled to life. He raised it to his lips and hit the button. Summers, he said into it, then held the speaker to his ear. He listened to what sounded like a bunch of garbled crackling to Anderson, but Summers was nodded. He clicked the intercom off and turned to Anderson. It's the guy runs Doucette's helicopter, wants to know if the fox is ready to be picked up. Anderson was nodding briskly. Tell him to come to Flag HQ and get us. Tell him we'll take him to Doucette. Summers relayed the information, and then they went to wait beside the helipad. Twenty minutes later, they were off. The pilot lifted up and took them southwest towards Lake Erie, speaking to them through the headsets. We're being routed west along the lakeshore on a higher altitude. Airspace over the 401 corridor is for emergency air traffic only. We should be setting down in Mount Bridges in 40 minutes or so, but hang on tight. Your ears are going to pop. As they began to climb, Anderson looked towards the north. Across the region, several spires of smoke rose up into the sky from different places. The countryside was populated with them. Around them, he could see the waters of the lakes in all directions. The water was blue for the most part, but not in Georgian Bay. In Georgian Bay, the water had turned brown. From up here, he thought, it looked like the bay had been X'd out, shaded, scribbled off the map, eliminated. One of the biggest bodies of fresh water in the world had been befouled. The human race are fools, he thought. The pilot spoke to someone on his headset, and they descended, settling in at almost treetop level over the affluent town of Oakville. They flew over a cul-de-sac, passing above some very large and flashy mansions. There was a lot of movement on that road, and Anderson narrowed his eyes in consternation. What the hell, he wondered, and then his forehead smoothed. They were clearing out. He shook his head wryly, one corner of his mouth hitching up in a smirk. All along the cul-de-sac, Escalades and navigators sat idling in front of doorstops with their hatches open as men and women hustled children and possessions into the waiting cargo holds. And so they go, he mumbled. Summers looked at him. Anderson cleared his throat. Word's been spread, apparently. Looks like these guys got a message from the rich guy Grapevine telling them to hit the bricks. They're packing up their escalades and heading for high ground. Hell, Oakville's going to be a ghost town before dark. Same with every other wealthy, wealthy suburb here to Windsor. He shook his head, looking out over the western horizon to where the sun had begun its descent towards the earth. Took less time than I'd have thought. 
Summers peered down over the last of the homes as the wealthy neighborhood retreated out of sight. Then he looked down at his satchel of cash. He held the bag clasped tightly on his knees, and inside a fifth of whiskey was stashed amongst the bills. He cocked a glance at Anderson, who seemed much calmer than the rest of the flag crowd, who were a bunch of five-star jackasses to work for. He reached over and tapped Anderson on the arm. I'm a little shook up, Summer said, that Cochran guy. I guess you know I had to help clean up the body and the things he said, this Operation Resolute and the thing about the children. It gave me the shudders. Would it be okay if I had a little drink to settle my nerves? Anderson was about to say no on principle, but then he took another look at Summers' face. The man really did have a haunted look about his eyes. Anderson wasn't sure why he'd brought Summers along. He'd been acting on instinct primarily, but it occurred to him that having been a witness to Preston's murder, Summers might just prove valuable to have around. He could back up Anderson's position. He rolled his hand forwards from the wrist a couple of times. Go ahead, he said, not unkindly. The man really had been having an unusually shitty day, Anderson realized. I'm not your average flag, boss. Long as you don't go telling Miss Jennings that I let you, I don't care if you want to have a couple drinks, okay? Summers nodded gratefully. He pantomimed, drawing an imaginary zipper across his lips, and then set to opening the case, sifting through the stacks of bills and retrieving the bottle from its depths. He fumbled open the cap and took a pull, then tipped his head back and closed his eyes, savoring the burn of the liquid. He opened one eye and squinted at Anderson, then proffered the bottle towards him. Drink? Anderson chuckled, shook his head no, and gave him a minute to get his head on straight. You said something about Operation Resolute. Do you mind if I ask, what is that? Summer shuddered again. I was in the utility room. Cochran came in. This was just before he called them all together and told them to skedaddle. He came into the utility room. He didn't see me. He was on the phone. I heard what he said. He said, Operation Resolute is a go. Initiate the procedures. He talked about mobilizing buses, getting some kind of injections ready. He wanted enough doses put on each bus, one for every seat. He wanted a crew deployed, one per bus. Summers took another swig and swallowed hard, looking at Anderson. He said to send the guns and that he wanted those crews well armed. Summers broke off and took another deep, long drink. When he finished, he looked at Anderson with tears in his eyes. He even said to give the injections to the children. Don't worry, he said. There's always a market for the children, he said. I don't know what the fuck that means, but it sounds sinister as fuck. Who thinks of a kid that way? Like a commodity. Anderson leaned back and turned to look out the window. There was a giant smudge of dust marring the sky to their north, several helicopters buzzing over the brown water of Georgian Bay beyond. Operation Resolute, he was thinking. What the fuck is that? Anderson knew a bit about Flag's operation. Could it be a reference to one of those, he wondered? But what was the need for buses and injections 
and the deployment of armed crews. There was only one place he could think of that would even make sense. There was only one place that he knew of where there would even be room to take busloads of people to. And that place was the cobalt mine, he said under his breath in a whisper, and the skin on his forearms pebbled in goose flesh. God damn you, Cochrane. A sick feeling settled in his stomach. He had an idea. He knew what resolute was, all right, and it was evil. If what he was thinking proved to be true, Operation Resolute was pure evil. He turned the idea over in his mind. As the top geologist, Anderson knew about the cobalt deposit that Cochrane had found in northern Ontario. Anderson even knew about the barracks. He had been to the site with his father, examining the mineral samples. He recalled the shifty way his father had looked around and avoided the question when Anderson asked what the barracks were for. The workers, his father had replied, and changed the subject. Anderson tried to overlay that concept with the thought of what was happening here on the ground. Could Cochrane be planning to fill the buses with evacuees, force them to take some kind of injection, bring them up to the cobalt mines, and house them in the barracks like some kind of concentration labor camp? He needed time to think. He watched the land pass by below them, land that had become rotten and broken and riddled with sinkholes like a network of fissures. All Cochrane's work, all Cochrane's doing, him and his billionaire vulture friends. He scrubbed at his eyes with his fist, but when he opened them again, it hadn't changed. The land was pocked with sinkholes some with crevasses of broken earth stretched out in either direction from their centers. Seen from above, it reminded him of the way that zombie flesh was portrayed in movies, mottled and veined and marked with rotting pustules, decayed, the aquifers, he thought, and then it's starting. The subsidence is starting. His head fell back to rest against the headrest, People needed to be evacuated from this area, yes, but not to Resolute. Not if what he was suspecting proved to be what that was. Not to some kind of forced labor camp, with who knew what kind of forced injection in them. Anderson didn't know what was in the injections, but he knew it wasn't good. Nothing that Cochrane gave away for free was good, not for anyone else but him. He didn't roll that way. Anderson closed his eyes and heard the pulse of his blood throbbing in his ears. He saw in his mind a memory from that morning in the boardroom after he'd made his presentation of himself pleading for the human lives that would be lost and Cochrane looking, like, looking at him like he was an insect on a slide under a microscope. He swallowed down the watery taste of metal. This was not good, not good at all. None of this was any good. He had to get to Mount Bridges had to get to this Jenner Walters and explain to her how much danger they were really in. He had to warn them that the Bruce Peninsula wasn't the canary in the coal mine he had led them to believe, that the land could go now any time, regardless of whether the Bruce had fallen yet. They were all in danger, everyone in southwestern Ontario. They were all at risk, that there was a possibility that Cochrane was going to try to capitalize on this moment and enact some kind of forced labor situation 
that people shouldn't take the injections, that there was something dangerous about them. The ground beneath them was no longer stable. Structural integrity had been breached, but there were dangers beyond the evac zone. Oh yes. He got his smartphone out and looked at the website. His video had more than a million views so far. She had an audience and he had to get to her to get her to change their message. Tell the people that it wasn't just the evac zone that people needed to know about. Tell them that the timeline was speeding up from what he put into the slideshow. Anderson reached over and snatched the bottle. Summers blinked at him in surprise as Anderson took a quick pull and then squinting, dragged the back of his hand across his lips. I changed my mind, he told him, deadpan, and Summers laughed. Oh, all right then, cheers, Summers said merrily. Anderson took another pull as the helicopter brought them closer to Mount Bridges. Cochrane's Black Hawk hovered low above a bright orange helipad. A quake was in progress, and the landing was difficult. The pilot touched first one skid and then a second later the other. They were down. Cochrane could feel the vibrations coming from the earth, transmitted through the frame of the machine. At the same time, he could feel the machine shake as the rotor spooled down. He would be glad to be back on his jet, he realized, where he could circle the earth freely above all of this. His jet gleamed on the runway, a short distance away, black and sleek and streamlined and emblazoned with the golden upthrust fist of the flag insignia. The jet was wicked fast. Flag was registered on paper as a philanthropic nonprofit human rights organization. On paper, this jet was a special needs aircraft used to transport aid workers and goods to human rights emergencies in other lands but nobody with half a brain would believe it had any other purpose than what it was, the tax-sheltered plaything of the world's most powerful man. Cochrane and his friends, you could call them that if you wanted to, but they were as likely to find themselves with the blade sticking out of their backs as anybody, had enjoyed several decades worth of liberties in this regard. Blatant exploitation was entirely way too possible because bureaucrats and their procedures could be purchased. Discreet briefcases of unmarked bills placed in the hands of decision makers bought a man his way in the various institutions that were in place to prevent transgressions like these from occurring. It was how the capitalist world worked. As he waited in the Black Hawk for the whomping of the blades to still, Cochrane felt the quaking of the earth subside. He knew that the quakes were of his organization's doing, but he didn't give that a thought. He was focusing on his jet. Unfortunately, he mused, the times were changing. Thanks to internet hackers leaking confidential information and the growing awareness of inequality, his golden age of blatant exploitation and his own self-interest was becoming harder and harder to carry out, he thought with a sigh. He would have to double down on his endeavors. And I will, with Project Resolute, he consoled himself. Resolute would be profitable. There was no avoiding that. Not with free labor harvesting all that cobalt. There would be another side of Resolute, where the children were. This would be a fly-in resort, like experience. Sorry. This would be a fly-in resort-like experience where the wealthiest of the world could come in for vacation 
and purchase live children for their sexual playthings, torturing them and violating them, and even murdering them if they were willing to pay for the ultra-premium package. Setting up a thing like that at Resolute was a given, and it was not the first one Cochrane had set up. He wasn't into kids himself, but he knew that plenty of rich men were, and he was not above exploiting that kind of inhumanity for profit. The fracking situation was coming to an end. That much was true, but the call for evacuations would yield him not only the workers for his cobalt mine, but also the bodies of the workers' children, Cochrane's to exploit. The money would be easy to disguise because Cochrane, like all the other members of the flag board, including Cynthia Jennings, owned banks. Cochrane owned several banks, actually, but the board members of FLAG all owned at least one. In the years since he and his friends had pressured the Bush administration into deregulating the financial industry, there was simply no better cash cow out there. Owning banks, they made a killing off of subprime mortgages. But the derivatives market had been the crowning glory. Their take had plunged the world into recession. But Eric Cochran didn't have to worry about that. His wealth was secure. When the going had been good with aggressive lending practices, he'd made a mint. He was so rich now that his wealth was almost incalculable, even for his chief accountant. Not for him. Like Scrooge McDuck, Cocker knew his net worth down to the dollar, and he never tired of seeking ways to increase it. The name of the game in 2019 was real estate. He'd been buying up farmland, houses, apartment buildings, condos. His real estate portfolio was staggering. It was the most solid investment in these uncertain times, and the more properties you bought, the higher the price went up on them. Supply and demand, baby. And he bought up a great big piece of land up in what used to be the far north crown forest up at the top of Ontario. And he'd used it to set up his compound. Fallon's little brainwave with the shale beds had been quite lucrative as well for quite a while. It had come along just when the world was still reeling from the ramifications of the banks collapsing. Every economic journalist in the United States was screaming accusations, and Flag had come through full steam ahead, ramping up production on the thrusts and digging fracking bores wherever possible. Cochran thought fondly back to those days. The stench of fear had been thick back then in southwestern Ontario, which had always been a hub of manufacturing. During the crisis, when globalization had made it much more profitable for companies to use cheap labor in developing nations, Ontario had teetered on the brink of the financial abyss. Factories were closing left and right, but then the thrust plant had come through, shining like a beacon of white hope. Jobs had poured into southwestern Ontario again. Good jobs, unionized jobs, and manufacturing. Lawmakers and legislatures had been so grateful that no one had been willing to delve too deeply into what the rules of the game were and so the Manico drills had gone down into the earth. With the promise of economic recovery back on the table, no one had been willing to look too closely at what was going on behind the curtain. Looking back, Cochran couldn't help congratulating himself. Well played, he thought, smug. 
If only we'd had a few more years, we could have really gotten the union out of there, and then our profits would have really soared. Next time, he promised himself, nodding. Cochran was the survivor. When the chips had come down on Wall Street in 2008, he'd simply picked up his earnings and set them back down in another direction, backing Fallon's brave wave, brainwave and pairing him up with Manico, who had the tools to do the drilling. For his efforts, Cochran had collected a tidy cut of the profit from every thrust. It had been a good run, but now that it was over, he'd turn his mind to resolute, to his new endeavor. His next opportunity to fleece the masses was here, and he was ready to pounce on it, just like he'd always done in the past. And if it worked, if the prototype at Resolute was successful, it was a model that could be replicated globally. As the quaking of the earth subsided, his thoughts turned gloomy. A period of stagnation was unavoidable. Cochrane hated boredom more than anything, but it couldn't be helped. Beside him, Cynthia Jennings uncoupled her lap boat and stretched, filling her lungs with air and arching her back. Cochrane caught a glimpse of the delicate chemise she wore, the filmy scrap of fabric that clung to her flesh like a coating of the world's finest elixir. As one door closes, another opens. He grunted and remembered pleasure at the satiny sensation of her willing flesh yielding with supple ease to the pressure of his fingers. He'd gotten over her little slip-up with the email address. It actually suited him and his vision for Resolute, but he would never let her know that. He would let her think that she was on the knife's edge of his bad favor and that at any moment he could turn on her and hold that email slip-up over her head. Besides, the world was bound to eventually find out about the fracking anyway, but they'd never prove it. Not once the subsidence happened and the flood came to wash away everything. He would put the wheels in motion, engineer the media coverage, spin it his way. He had Bia on his team, and she was great for that. The writing had been on the wall in Cochrane's mind for the end of that venture anyway. He already had some points prepared. Anderson's presentation had not been a surprise. Cochrane had his own team of very expensive poindexters on payroll, collecting data, searching for additional frac sites, and they reported to him weeks before about the imminent disaster that was now unfolding. He'd known ahead of Anderson that the shit was going to hit the fan, and he also knew from experience that it was months later in the aftermath of most disasters before people got around to figuring out what had gone wrong. By the time the shock wore off and the authorities got down to the brass tacks of laying blame, he'd have the right people and the right positions of power paid off. The right evidence would fall off of the right desks. The right scapegoat would be set up to take the blame. He could make these things happen. He'd done it time and again in the past. It was the way of things. He sighed. It couldn't be helped. Not now. Suspicion would be laid at his door. He knew that. A small nucleus of people, Anderson among them, would have the documentation that they needed to prove his culpability in the massive loss of life and ecological damage. But the right leverage could silence them. Pressure could be applied. 
professional credibility could be ruined. The narrative of what was popular and acceptable and accurate could be skewed. And if individuals wanted to speak out against it, they could be canceled. The threat of deplatforming was a powerful incentive to make people shut up and go along with the flow. But if it turned out not to be sufficient to silence some, those people could be traced and one by one destroyed. Anderson's death, along with a handful of others that included this mayor, Jenna, who was causing him so much grief today, would frighten anyone, the majority of those who had evidence, into submission. This he also knew firsthand, a little kernel of truth surviving in people's minds would add to his reputation for ruthlessness, a trait that he was justifiably known for and one that served him well. Cochran sat back and stretched, hearing the pops and crackling of his ligaments. Then he reached a hand into the front of his pants and adjusted the nylon garment he wore to smooth his waddles. It was beginning to chafe him after the long helicopter ride, and he thought with the anticipation of his comfortable lounge inside the jet. In just a few short minutes, he'd be in his silk pajamas, reclining on the Italian leather furniture, and Cynthia would be with him. He cleared his throat and turned to wake up Doucette, who had fallen asleep beside him on the long ride. We're going to my chalet in the Pyrenees, said Cochrane. From there, you can get yourself to wherever it is you're going. I think it best if we lay very low on another continent for now until this settles. Cochrane turned away and began to rise, but Doucette put a hand on his arm to stop him. I'm not coming, Doucette told him through his swollen mangle of a mouth. Cochrane looked into the fox's ice blue eyes and saw he had a score to settle. You'll get your Blackhawk back when I'm done with it. I'm going back. Cochran sighed and nodded. He didn't blame Doucette. Hell, in his position, he would do the same. The desire for vengeance was one that Cochran understood. You're going back for this James fellow. Doucette nodded just the once. Cochran sighed. All right, then. Take down that Walters bitch, too. You will, won't you? You're going to shut her up make her pay for uploading that video. You'll do that for me, right? Doucette's eyes took on a steely glint. He cracked every knuckle in both of his hands. Then he nodded again. You bet. Cochran smiled wanly. Okay, good. Have the pilot bring my black hawk back here when you're done. Catch up with me after. Let me know how it went. Doucette gave a half salute and Cynthia Jennings wiggled her fingers in his direction before hopping wildly down from the machine. Cochran followed, and together they crossed the asphalt to the waiting jet. A moment later, the massive turbine engines roared to life, and Doucette watched the sleek aircraft taxi down the airstrip and take off. He waited while the pilot refueled the Black Hawk, and then the man climbed back in behind the controls. The pilot put on his helmet and adjusted his instruments. And as the massive rotors thumped, he looked at Doucette. Where to? came the pilot's voice through the headset, and a wintry expression dulled the fox's bright blue eyes. T. 
take me back to Mount Bridges, he said, and they were off. All right, that was a long chapter, over an hour, jeepers. Um, okay, I'm going to leave it there for now. Thank you for listening, and uh, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well and safe and enjoying the new year, 2022. Don't forget to set an intention for today. Stay safe, stay free.